0: This podcast is Intel Enhanced. To see pictures, articles, and links of what's being discussed, download the Intel app.
1: Hello, welcome to The Big Scuba Show.
2: Hello, this is Richard Garriott, and I am on The Big Scuba Podcast with Ian and Gemma. We are here to talk about exploring in the extremes, everything from the poles to orbiting the earth to down to the deepest point out of the Challenger Deep, the Mariana Trench. I hope you can join us. Hello everyone,
1: welcome back to The Big Scuba Podcast. My name is Ian and I'm here with... Gemma. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Uh, this is episode 71 and this is The Big Scuba Podcast.
0: Yep, and The Big Scuba Podcast is a podcast all about diving and things to do with the underwater world and on top of the water and anybody that's got some connection to...
3: Anything
1: to do with water, exploring, conservation. Yeah, and that's basically us in a nutshell. And uh, Gemma is a baby diver, as she's been referred to a few times. And uh, I'm your trusty dive master hanging about at the back. So uh, there we go. Um, hanging about. Hanging about. That's what we do as our dive. We we hang about at the back often on our training courses. Right. So that's that. That's a little bit about who we are. So what is coming up on this episode?
0: We've got uh, a chat with Richard Garrett, who's an amazing guy from the USA, yep. and he has done an awful lot. Are you going to tell us a bit about what he's done? Yeah, we'll talk
1: about that, and we've got a little bit of news also about some developments on the uh, Big Scuba podcast front, which is really good, and we hit a little milestone, uh, well,
3: I think, yeah, since I think... the last
1: time we were with our listener yeah
0: we've well we've had a couple of achievements i think yeah
1: um should we do that first yeah yeah so uh, um so uh i want to say a big thank you first i think um to everybody who has subscribed to the big scuba youtube channel um we've hit a thousand Woo,
0: oh. we're over a thousand now we hit, <laughs> hit a thousand
1: we hit a thousand and we're over a thousand now yeah. so that's really brilliant and uh, you know that's really great and uh, what I want to say thank you very much to oh, I found one of your hairs
0: <laughs> what are you doing
1: and uh, yeah so this is the thing we don't get I don't have this on Zoom <laughs> well, I'm in Zoom I don't hair. have one of your hairs what's going on well we now we're reaching out over across the microphone I'm getting attacked by one of your long blonde hairs <laughs> anyway anyway we digress so where were we youtube, YouTube yes i knew we were talking about <laughs> we something so thousands. yes what I say thank you very much for everybody who have sub- subscribed if you haven't been there yet have a look go to youtube and just look on the youtube for the big scuba yep, and we should pop up yeah and, and there's and, lots of uh,
0: things to watch we've done product reviews picture of us underwater on yeah. the water yeah, generally having a bit of fun
1: yeah and there'll be more coming this year
0: yeah and some um, interviews with our guests as well so you can see them in the flesh on YouTube as well
1: yeah but they've got clothes on
0: oh, yes
1: you people know could, well, people, could, people could get the wrong idea and think they're <laughs> naked not got got n-
0: YouTube channel. <laughs> they've
1: got naked guests
0: on <laughs> well maybe that's yeah, the next stage I don't know do you know what <laughs> I mean
1: I know we're friendly with all our guests, but we're not that friendly. Either, you
0: can actually see them in, um, yes. They, well, they, they're three dimensional. They like do. Like they do have clothes. They have clothes on.
1: They yes. do have. I, I do. I promise you, they do. That is a family show, and they do have all yes, their clothes. Yes, and
0: on. there'll be a episode to reflect this podcast with Richard.
1: Yes, yeah. yes, and that will be coming out. Um, also. Uh, we are the first podcast in, UK, and I can't even believe this, but this is absolutely true. If I don't move from this spot, uh, it was confirmed um, just this week by the British Library.
3: Mm-hmm. The we British. are the
1: first podcast in the UK um, to have an ISSN number for our podcast.
0: So we're catalogued.
1: We are catalogued, and it'll be there, recorded... As a thing, yeah. we are a thing in the British Library.
0: Yeah, and if you want to look up the number, it's in the show notes. It certainly and, is. Yeah. yeah, trace us through. So we we've made history, really. We'll be there forever. I guess so. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, which is pretty cool. And so our poky little podcast from Bungie and Lower Stuff <laughs> has made it to the British Library. How about that? So, uh, well, we are. You know, uh, you know, we are a growing podcast. We are. So, We're um, a global podcast. We, yeah, unbelievable, really. 97 countries, huh?
0: I think we're near 100 now. So is it? Mm.
1: So uh, hello to all you little listeners out there. Thank you very In, much. all the In, countries
0: around the world.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So, yeah, look it up. So uh, I think the uh, the number uh, that you need to look up, and I think this works, actually. Um, I'm stalling because I'm looking for the number. Uh,
0: Go to to Sorry? Go, to,
1: go to big and go to yes. It's actually on our website. Why didn't I think of that? And then Twitter pops up and takes over. Mm. Talk amongst yourselves. Uh, yes, the number. You know, it should work if you go into Google uh, on the British Library. Type in I S S N two 2752- seven five two 6127 and it? the dash is like a minus sign so 2752 dash 6127 and uh, that we should pop up and uh, yeah we are there like a slab of concrete embedded into the British Library there's a, <laughs> the, there's a yeah. block of stone somewhere and that has got Engraved. on <laughs> big scuba <laughs> we're there like a, you know, there for time
0: we, here we are yeah, we, a, I don't know, was that? One I know, one day thinking
1: so uh, I don't know how they're going to do it but yeah
0: so if you've never looked up an ISSN number then something
1: to do yeah give it a go yeah that's brilliant other podcasts I will say other podcasts do have them but it'll be for their part there'll be a certain part mm. of their podcast but what we've been given it's is called... for the actual podcast in its entirety so uh which is brilliant yeah and it's the first time in fact the British Library there's um Hello to uh, Dawn, who uh, helped set it up. we saying that, you know, that actually prompted quite a few questions because they weren't quite sure whether it's even possible. Mm. Because there's a couple of other sort of um, organisations who do similar things. Um, and they had to speak to their uh, contacts in Paris.
0: Yeah, so, to, yeah, we've stirred up check, a little bit of interest. Yeah, and they're
1: like, we don't know whether we can do this. And she says, you, you've actually you know stirred up quite a few questions on whether we can actually do it and she said we can
0: yeah so there we go yeah
1: so that 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 was that was brilliant so so that was really good so we've hit a thousand and we've done that um and also just what i say as well very quickly do remember and if you can to tell your friends about the big Scoop podcast and give leave us a review whether you listen to us on entail itunes spotify Podbean, um, Google Play, Amazon Music, Amazon, you you name it. Uh, Leave us a review and tell your friends because you know it's a free way of subscribing. Yeah, we uh, do like
0: hearing from everybody, don't we? Oh God, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it's great. You know, it was always great hearing questions and things like that. Any
0: recommendations? Any ideas for guests? Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Drop right. us a line, and we'll we'll get back to you. That's the yeah. Thing.
1: The back phone there as well. So uh, we'll re- read the number out at the back at the end of the podcast about that. So that's that. Okay. Let's talk about Richard. Let's talk about Garrett. Richard because yeah. um, now I can't remember what it was. Something I was looking at a while ago, and Richard popped up, and I was reading about it, and know. yeah, and I was thinking, wow, he, this is awesome. You know. Uh, if you don't know uh, Richard, um, if you've not come across Richard before, if you like computers and you are uh, into gaming, particularly gaming platforms, especially of the gaming platforms of the sort of late, mid-80s, he designed on one of the very first Apple computers the Ultima series of platforms. And that was, he helped design it and, um I'm i I'm just not into computers. I'm sorry, I'm just no, not. and no, I had to no. confess to Richard I'm you know, kinda of lost when it do when not, computers just they're law yeah. to their own thing. Great, that's fine. Um but yeah. And it you know, but if you like your dungeons and dragons, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's where
0: the connection is it, with him.
1: Yes, yeah. So he helped set all these some of these games up in the eighties, um, on platforms. Mm-hmm. And you think go back to the eighties where the internet was. Yeah. That was a whole different world back then, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: and it? Well, was it your
1: mobile phones, Jim? No,
0: and he had an old what it computer. Like? Huh? What was it like? Yeah. I, I don't what know. was it like back in the day? <laughs> I'm a mere slip of a thing. I don't remember.
1: And uh, so he he basically uh, you know become very successful in that. Um, he's actually born in the UK. He's actually born uh, in Cambridge and um some the the game he's got there's lots of stuff on youtube and the internet about richard and uh if you want to know about the background of richard go on youtube there's loads of different interviews that he's made about his game in past Mm -hmm. and he's also well known by his peers as lord british yeah yeah so um yeah um so very interesting guy and uh, so let me tell you a bit about him you know so richard has journeyed to and this is why we got we wanted to get richard on the podcast so richard has journeyed to both poles orbited the planet explored jungles peered into volcanoes and hunted meteorites Mm. richard has recently been to the rarely visited depths of the mariana trench in the pacific ocean to become the first person to have travelled to the earth's four extremities
0: yeah and the deepest point in the the
1: north pole south pole beyond the atmosphere and the deepest point in the hydrosphere um british born american computer game entrepreneur as we mentioned and he dived to the challenger deep and you know that is a long long way down
0: well over six miles yeah Yeah. so and then he's the president of the explorers club as well he certainly is is very much an explorer
1: he is and he'll explain about the explorers you know club it's you know this goes back to the days of shackleton Mm. you know that's the history of of that club you know uh yes they're on twitter and everything else but, you know, this goes way, way back. You know, the people who have been in there are the people who made the first flights across the Atlantic. Mm. Uh, first people to go to the North and South Poles.
0: Groundbreakers. So.
1: Yeah, you know, it's awesome. Yeah. So uh, you've got to be a groundbreaker. And he's the president. <laughs> I
0: know. He's the main man. <laughs> yeah, so it's quite a title to have. It certainly and is. certainly, um, yeah.
1: And it. I have to say, thoroughly decent guy. Yes. Uh, uh, pleasure to chat to and um really was an exciting and we could have spoke to him for hours because, we could
0: yeah he was just like down to earth enthralling and yeah sort of captivates you and yeah, yeah. just everything that he had to say
1: so that's richard that was us
0: <laughs> let's have a chat with richard
1: yeah let's do it so in sit back uh, get grab a cup of coffee and press play and enjoy
0: yeah this is episode 71 with richard garrett
1: Hello, hello, hello. You. <laughs> How you doing?
2: Very good. Hey.
1: So, uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Richard. Online, we've got uh, myself, Ian, Gemma, and Richard Garriott. And uh, you're very well known for uh, going to space, going to the uh, the deepest part of the Mariana Trench. The um, you've been to both. Uh, polar caps, been to the North Pole, been to the South Pole, and also your history is come from the computer world, and uh, you designed and was involved in the Ultima series pl- platform in the 1980s. Um, yeah, so I've, been,
3: I've been busy.
1: <laughs> you certainly have been, you certainly have been, and, and we want to say, you know, thank very much and a big welcome to you for joining us on the uh, the podcast today.
2: First, let me just say thank you so much for your patience in getting this all set up here between us. Oh, a, I know I'm a very difficult guy to pin down and it was especially true over the last six weeks as I both finished that dive and took over the Explorers Club. And so uh, those two things kind of added up to being uh, difficult to schedule some time with.
3: Yeah, it's really good. to talk to you. Yeah, nice to meet you.
2: Thanks for joining us of course yeah and of course uh, as you know i uh, we follow each other now on uh, twitter and, and such and so i also enjoy uh, kind of uh, reading up on the other things that you guys are up to too so it sounds <laughs> like you guys have a really fun life
0: <laughs> we try and keep busy <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: uh, do all sorts of things yeah so yeah yeah so where are you actually based at the moment
2: uh this is new york sunlight you see out the window a little rainy drizzly here a little bit in fact you might I've got a, a roof hatch that since it's drizzly, we're getting a little pitter patter on the roof. If you hear that, sorry, it's rain, uh, but, uh, <clears throat> but I also, but I spend, uh, you know, before I got married, I lived in Austin, Texas. So we kept my place there when I moved here and my wife is French. So we have a little apartment in Paris from <laughs> her past also. So we actually go back and forth and back and forth uh, uh, quite a bit.
1: When, when did you last in Paris?
2: We, uh, oh, so so last summer, as COVID started, it was kind of an interesting little world tour we had because uh, New York being, you know, so deeply interconnected was one of the first places where COVID got bad fast, right. and so we left here, and when the kids got kicked out of school, we went to our, we have a lake cabin down in Austin, Texas, we thought that's a great, quiet, sequestered place, we'll ride it out here, yeah. but Uh, but Texas, you know, in in the United States, COVID seemed to rise and fall based on politics. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Texas is a Republican state that didn't believe in, you know, masks or other forms of protection. So COVID spiked in Texas much worse than most other places in the United States. So we thought, oh, but then at that point we were in the summer and we usually go to Europe anyway. And so we said, well, Europe actually doing really well right now for COVID. So let's, you know, and my wife has a French passport so we can, Pop over there. And yeah. um, and I could get in as the husband. Uh, and we stayed there through the summer. Uh, but then just as a school year was starting, and we were debating on staying there, uh, then Europe had a giant spike, right yeah. as New York was getting a clamp on it. And so we said, well, well, we'll go back to New York. And so we <laughs> came back here. So we, we, we've been fleeing COVID kind of in circles.
1: So for people who don't know you and we'll be learning about you for the first time unbelievable um, you know I'll find that quite hard that they won't know you. um can you tell us a little bit about who you are and you know yeah of course
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely you know it, it's funny I have uh, throughout my career quote unquote you know I've, I've always had sort of these two parts of of uh, uh of my passions you know one was as a creator uh, specifically, I feel really lucky I found my way into becoming one of the very first ever creators of computer games. And frankly, that was just good luck to be at the right age at the right time at the beginning. But <clears throat> what made me appropriate uh, potentially to do that it was, was my upbringing with an astronaut father and an artist mother that sort of sets you up to do high-tech art. And computer games are pretty much exactly high-tech art. So, so I, uh, I sort of was the right person at the right place at the right time to get that start. Yeah. And, But at the same time, also that kind of came out of my childhood was my passion for exploration. And, um, you know, uh, my father naturally, most people would you know, call astronauts explorers, but so was my mother. My mother was actually the one that would take me out into the yard or into the woods and, and uh, you know, we'd follow insects around on their daily life cycles of, you know, foraging and, uh, you know, uh, hunting and all the things that all these other bugs and creatures in the forest would do. Uh, and as a family, we would go and do a lot of you know, travel and including scuba diving. So I've been, you know, scuba diving since I was really a kid. But uh, uh, but that's just all all this kind of rolled together. And, and I, even, I even wrote a book a few years ago called Explore Create. And how I just think those are, at least for me, tied together at the hip. That, you know, the yeah. exploring is what inspires me to go create worlds that are inspiring for other people to go explore themselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it inspires other people, doesn't it? When they can yeah. see a journey that somebody else has been on and they can take bits of that to completely. Yes. Yeah, so- oh, yeah.
2: In fact, uh, just last night for the Explorers Club, which I'm now the president of, uh, I was doing a, um, uh, a chat with a, uh, uh, an author who had written a, a book about the Virgin Galactic uh, spaceship that is now launching. And so, of course, I, I was inspired by reading the book and I really enjoyed interviewing him. Uh, you know about uh, how he had uh, had such access to really hear the detailed stories of the test pilots that are you know opening up this new era of commercial space so it's a, uh, it's, a it's an exciting time uh to be in to, to for explorers i think in general and mm. and it just as you say Gemma, it's it's exciting to be inspired by other people's stories of exploration
0: yeah when well, that gives the continuation on doesn't it you're leading it on with other people to then take the yeah, torch and go exploring more. Yeah,
2: exactly right. And at least, for, at least for me, you know, I can, in addition to the family foundation I just mentioned, you know, uh, it was the, a book called Endurance, uh, about a ship called Endurance, uh, captained by Ernest Shackleton, uh, or I should say led by explorer Ernest Shackleton, down in Antarctica. Uh, yeah. That When I read that story, I was like, wow, that's, this is stuff I need to go do. You know, uh, <laughs> is, I need to go see these amazing things and somehow put myself in mortal danger, but survive.
1: And it must have been amazing hearing, you know, I'm sure your dad was, te- you know, talking about with his friends, you, you know, in the space world, talking about exploring and, you know, how exciting that's going to be to, to go out of space because, you know, he was on the, was that the Apollo? Uh, he,
2: he was radio. hired as an Apollo astronaut, but uh, when President Nixon in the US cancelled the last few Apollo to the moon flights, my father's right. first flight actually became Skylab. Uh, and then after that, he flew also on the space shuttle. Wow! Did he? Yeah, but but you're exactly right. I mean, those were the stories. You know, even before I have my own personal memories that I that I still remember. You know, my parents would tell me how even when I was you know three, four, five years old, I'd be going up to dad and going, "Hey, daddy, been to the moon today?" And he was always, "Not today, maybe tomorrow." You know, it was kind of the common banter. And uh, you know, in my neighborhood, all the that the, 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 you know there were not only most of the astronauts lived nearby, but those people who lived nearby that weren't astronauts were also people that generally worked at NASA putting people into space. So it was really yeah. sort of, the it was the thing. It was like a company town about space. Yeah. yeah.
1: And did your dad then try and, you know, was it your dad who then steered you towards about, you know, getting underwater and diving and uh, having fun underwater? And exploring? Yeah, you know, in
2: fact, actually my dad would always... You know, you know, my dad was a very Spock-like guy. He didn't really describe stories with anywhere near even the passion that we have already shared on this brief call. Uh, and so, you know, he he he. But but when he would talk about space and the sensations of space, uh, scuba diving is always what he would refer to. He he basically always. Anytime anybody asked, he'd say, "Yeah, if you want to know what it's like to be weightless in space, the closest analogy here on the Earth is scuba diving, where you're okay. with a." Uh, a good regulator to balance out the, the pressure at your mouth, uh, you know, and just, re- just relaxing into a fetal position and floating there is, you know, as close as you'll get on the earth. And so, uh, and so, yeah, so he was a big scuba diver. My mom was too. Therefore, the family did. You know, I, this goes back to the era of J-valves. I don't know if you guys remember J- J-valves. And, uh, and so at the age, my first, I still remember, I've, I've forgotten many of my dives, but I remember my first one and the, the reason very clearly. And the, and the reason is the J-valve because uh, uh, it was in Acapulco, uh, Mexico, uh, in Acapulco Bay. There's a wreck at the bottom of the bay, which I've never seen because <laughs> the dive we were going to make down to that wreck, which is going to be the first dive I would have ever made in my whole life, about halfway to the wreck suddenly it starts getting hard to breathe and <laughs> no one had to give me any briefing on how to open the J valve. And I, of course, was running out of air and nobody, and nobody had taught me any hand signals, you know, or buddy. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm down here running out of air, you know, kind of trying to get some adults, you know, uh, you know, uh, attention down here, 30, 40, 50 feet down. I don't know how they were. The wreck I think was at 60. And uh, finally Ooh. somebody else realized it must be the air. So they flip it for me and, uh life is good but that also is the end of the dive because you know they were out You know, then had,
1: had no training at all for that no
2: training zero training this was the, th- this was another time this was in the yeah. early 70s yeah.
3: so uh
2: you know no, no license was required uh this is just you know stick them stick a tank on their back with a j valve shove a regulator in their so mouth and
1: go. right
2: yeah I mean looking back on it of course it's kind of shocking but uh you know that really was that was a different time
1: especially at 60 feet or you know it's 20 meters down that's a long way yeah. down
2: yeah that's a long way down i don't think i was i wasn't that full depth yet but uh we were you know more than half of that for sure i don't know what the depth really was yeah. we didn't have depth gauges you know didn't have pressure gauges there was this <laughs> three gauges yeah. No dive tables, no gauges.
1: That's no amazing training. really when you think about it, that like, you know, um you were down at those depths and you've done that. We've before, as you say, before pressure gauges and things like that, and we still made it to the moon. Yeah, with
3: that's true.
2: That's about the same, yeah, the same period of time. Same yeah. period of time. Well, in fact, uh, uh, you know, that was a discussion I was uh, just having too associated with this book. I was actually calling my brother, who is a pilot, and he would he would love to pilot himself into space one day. But, but the trick about that is, is that all the new vehicles that are being built or most all the vehicles are being built are completely automated. Mm-hmm. It's all computer run. There's really no, there is no job for the human. And in fact, the human is seen as largely the weak link in the loop. And so you really want to keep the humans from touching any buttons. Like, yeah. you know, if, if there's an eject button, if you need it, you're too slow to hit it. And if you don't need it, hitting it is actually a problem. In and her. so there's really, you know, it's seen as you keep the humans away. But the exception to that is the, um, uh, is the Virgin Galactic uh, plane, which really does have pilots who are in direct control of the uh, uh, apparatus you know, the, yeah. the, the, on the perimeter of that airplane, space yeah. plane. Yeah.
3: yeah. So
0: with your scuba diving, did you eventually go through any training process Oh, yeah, of
2: course. <laughs> well, not on that trip. Not on that trip. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I would say it was, I've been diving a, a number of times since then, before, uh, you know, it became obvious that I really should go get uh, certified. And so I got certified um, still quite a while ago, originally in in the Florida Keys. Uh, there's a, one of my first long term favorite dive locations was the Pennacamp National Forest that's down there on the flo- in the Florida Keys. Uh, that's where I got my uh, first uh, paddy, I think it was uh, uh, card, and I used to dive there regularly. In fact, and and I would take not only we take family vacations there, but I would go charter houseboats and throw some tanks on it and just hang out, you know, for a week at a time out over the sure. over the reefs and and you know hang out you know in the water as long as I could. And it was shallow enough you could make a lot of dives, you know. Yeah. Also, so you could yeah. take a big stack of tanks and, and uh, operate pretty safely. Um, then, um, uh, later, much later, but still long ago now, now I'm almost 60. So it's still been a while ago, maybe 20 years ago. I sent you guys a copy of my, that, my, my advanced certification card, which, which, as I said, I keep it in my wallet all the time. So I, I carry way too thick a wallet. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and one of the things that I always have in there is my dive card right here. That's uh, yeah, you so, send uh, us your,
1: a copy of your Patty advanced
2: dive. Yeah, right there. So here it is. So, Brilliant. uh, yeah, so there, there it is. But uh, yeah, so I got my advanced certification in uh, 1990. So that's 30 years ago, still.
3: Yeah. But uh,
2: uh, and that was right at the advent of uh, uh, digital dive computers, integrated dive computers. And so, uh, and and as an early technology adopter, which I'll bet you all are too. You know, you you I'm sure you recognize this too, which is often the first versions of technology are not as good as the later mm-hmm. versions when they kind of work out the bugs and get the user interface. It worked out. And so on my certification dive for uh, my advanced certification, uh, we were doing a deep rec dive in high current. And I had one of these brand new first time I'm using it integrated dive computers. We get to depth and the display goes blank. Mm -hmm. And so I have no depth gauge. I have no computer for computing bottom time. Yeah, so basically, it was it was wiped? It was a, a complete blowout on the first yeah. dive, and and actually, it's one of the only times uh, again since that very first dive I ran out of air at depth, and so <laughs> me and my dive instructor, you know, had to buddy breathe the way back up and do our safety stops on the way back up, buddy breathing. Yeah. But you know, it it, we, it, it was it made it for a good checkout dive because it meant we could yeah. handle the circumstance. Yeah,
3: that's
1: it. And it's all you know. It's all experience. It's all learning, isn't it?
2: <laughs> yeah, but but what's what, what's actually interesting about that though is um, when I went to go train for my space flight, um, I was actually really surprised how much of it is exactly the same um, uh, uh, concepts and mathematics even uh, as scuba diving. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're talking. You know, if in a spacecraft, or frankly, the same things true for in a submarine you know, you're needing to get rid of the CO2 that you're breathing out, either by bubbling it away, or if you have a rebreather, scrub it. Uh, You're having to add oxygen or air. Uh, You're having to, depending on the pressure inside the vehicle, which you would like to, in in case of a vehicle, you want to manage it to one atmosphere. But if you're not scrubbing CO2 and you're adding oxygen, the pressure's going up. And so you need to know about the partial pressures of the gases. And conversely, if you uh, either have a leak in your spacecraft or, you are not adding enough oxygen while you're scrubbing the CO2 in a submarine. Your your total pressure is going down, and so therefore you might get the bends, and you might you know have nitrogen you know, bubbles and stuff. And so basically it's the same material. And so uh, uh, you know if, so if you are you know anyone that can get a scuba license is easily just going to be you're going to find it good fun, and you could easily qualify for managing the life support on either a spacecraft or a submersible.
0: Yeah. yeah. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah we had,
1: we had um um a fellow uh friend of yours uh, Mike, uh Commander Mike Fink on a while ago and he he was explaining very similar things and uh you know he was cuz you're both on we the other were one yeah
2: yeah yeah he he was the flight engineer uh in the same flight that I I flew on so we had a we had yeah. a great time together in space yeah.
1: the diving and the space world are
2: very small worlds they, they are absolutely true <laughs>
0: <laughs> so with your diving do you still log your dives
2: you No, know, i have to confess i i think i i'm trying to think about if, I've, if uh, since i received my advanced have i logged any dive and i think the answer is no and so i think i think all the way up through getting my advanced certification i was logging my dives yeah. uh or at least the majority of them um yeah. but uh but i think since then uh i've quit logging them I oh, no i think i did one. i did i did want, i went on i've, I've logged a few because i now remember uh uh i was down diving with some manta rays off the southern coast of california and uh and i was still logging those because uh i remember drawing images of the you know patterns on the uh the manta rays that yeah. we saw so, yeah. uh, so there was at least a few that i logged since then but not many
1: yeah. so do you log the sightings and report back to like uh mount pacific
2: uh I don't remember if that's who we reported back to but yes we did for the manta rays we did um, because there were some of the folks on bo- on board were involved in a manta identification project and that's why we were going out of our way to fill out sheets uh for the mantas that we were uh, encountering on that on that trip
0: yeah yeah so with your scuba diving do you have any preference for just kind of open water diving or wreck diving diving with marine life Caves. Well,
2: so wrecks are always interesting. In fact, I've, uh, for at least for me, you know, it's interesting. I've never dove in a cave of any significance. I mean, some mm. in the reefs, and some little short caves, but never true uh, cenote or cave diving. Uh, and I would find that both fascinating and intimidating in the sense of uh, uh, that is a calculable risk that, you know, begins to build quickly if mm. you're, you know, and, and, and as you know, scuba diving, just like skydiving or a lot of these other sports, uh, you know, you need to be current. You need you need to be, you know, stay uh, active uh, and skilled before you push those envelopes. And so, right. cave diving is another one of those things where I, I wouldn't do it unless I was, you know, well trained and and doing it very actively for a period. Uh, but I, but I love wreck dives, uh, which uh, again comes with some hazards, but with the the beauty of the exploration aspect. Yeah, I love reef dives with wildlife, or or like with we were talking about the manta rays, I saw. They've seen some whale sharks and other things on some of the, the, the big ocean creatures. Uh, but, but, you know, I also, you know, it's, it may seem weird, but I enjoy backyard pool dives with my kids and such, or when I was a kid, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would do things and, you know, maybe you guys have done this all, maybe this is really common. It'll be interesting to see if you, if you think this is common or, or not. Uh, but uh, even before I was diving with tanks, I would take, uh, we had a pool in the backyard when I was growing up, I would take a five gallon pickle bucket that had a handle on it, I'd add some regular 20 pound weights on the bottom of it, so that you could sink it underwater with a bubble of air in it. And then I'd go down on the bottom of the pool and hold on to that handle, put a mask and a snorkel up into the bucket full of air above my head. <laughs> and so I'm rebreathing breathing a bucket full of air. But that actually lasts for 20 minutes, you know, before you start going like, "Hey, it's kind of you, know, you feel a little over, a little too much carbon dioxide in this little bubble," and you, you know, go grab yourself a new little burp of, of air. Or mm-hmm. I would sit down at the bottom of that pool, and uh, and I found uh, that you know if you stand on your head on the bottom of a pool and let the tip of the tank touch the bottom, uh, and so your lungs are above the regulator. And so you actually, if anything, have a little bit of positive pressure, pushing air into your lungs a little more than having to suck. I found that to just be a really relaxing position to just go, s- not really sleep, but snooze on the bottom of the swimming pool, head down with the tank. And so my parents would come out and go like, where's Richard? We haven't seen him you know, for 15 minutes out here in the backyard. And it's because I'm half asleep on the bottom of the pool standing on my head. Yeah. And so, uh, so I would, I would enjoy you know, the, all of these aspects of, of, of diving. You know, just just the sensation of being in the water and bubbles, much less what you get to see.
1: Yeah. Haven't done that, but we are practicing handstands at CrossFit at the moment. So All right. maybe we could try that in the pool.
2: Yeah. That's right. Just be sit down, and really cool. let the tank ride up, put the put the put thing and let your elbows hang out so you don't flop too much side to side and just relax on the bottom.
3: We've
0: done handstands in the sea. So there you go. We'll be doing that next.
2: Yeah. All right. We'll
1: <laughs> but no, I've not done the pickle bucket thing. No, haven't done that.
2: Yeah, that one's that might one be a little more unusual. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I could just kind of visualize it,
2: yeah, Five gallon bucket. Why don't you put your head
1: stuck in the bucket
3: though?
2: <laughs> no, well, you know, the bucket's bad. No, the bucket's you know, it's it's a loose fitting cap, you know, and your and your eye line is below the bucket. You just have the snorkel going up into the air bubble. It works. Yeah, my like my head,
1: my head gets stuck in the bucket. <laughs>
0: Uh, no, no, well, it's good. You know, and you have a natural affinity to the water. So it's, I think it, it's in you, isn't it? You know. Yeah,
2: definitely. Yeah. And, um, uh, uh, oh, in fact, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of funny part of me. I'm going to pull something out of my, my cabinet here. But, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't even think about this literally until I was about to go on this deep submersible trip down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which is when I was probably preteen, I was really into Legos. But I was also into disassembling every piece of technology in the house, especially things with motors and things in them. And I built this. And this is my little Lego submarine that I built when I was a kid. And it's hollowed down the middle. So I could put in two, you know, two or three batteries and a little motor that I would take out of some motorized slot car kind of thing. And I would handcraft a little plastic propeller to stick on the back of that motor. Yeah. And even when the batteries are wet, they still operate. And so this little submarine would drive around in my tub. And I loved it so much that I eventually glued it together. So this is super glued together. Yeah, your original and Lego. I've and I've had it my whole life. And so, yeah, Brilliant. this is my Lego submarine that I've had since I was a kid. So, of course, I took it down to the Mariana Trench as well. So, uh, right. right. cool yeah, so, this is, uh, so, yeah so, so my passion for going underwater, even in submersibles, uh, goes back further than I had thought of until I just did it.
0: Yeah. So your exploration to the Mariana Trench—how did that come about?
2: Well, you know, it's—it's uh, it's funny how a lot of these things happen. In that, um, a lot of the exploration I've done, whether it's you know previous deep dives to, the, say, that Titanic and uh, this vehicle here, the Mir submersibles, um, or <clears throat> frankly even going to space, some stuff I've done in the poles. Uh, a lot of that was with companies and organizations that got built out of meeting people at the Explorers Club. I mean, uh, the Explorers Club is a really amazing place to meet this combination of young researchers who have gone like, I, I, I know I want to go study this thing in this place, but I have no idea how to get there or what I need to bring with me uh, or have the resources to pull it off. But I really want to go and I think it's good science. And then they'll meet the second kind of person is at the club that's going like, yeah, I'm the old sea captain who's been everywhere and I know how to get there and I can tell you who the outfitters are and I can tell you what you got to pack, but you'll have to come up with your own money. And then there's the third kind, which, which, uh, you know, could be the, 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 the least helpful, the least about the least, the least helpful in one sense, but most helpful and essential in another, which is the people who go like, Hey, I really want to go do that too. And I'm willing to help fund it. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's sort of what I would have always represented is the person who says, I really want to go do these things. I'm not that scientist. I hadn't been there before, but if we build a company to go do it and I get to go, I'm there, I'm in, Count on me as part of the, part of the team. And so, um, uh, And so that's how I got to do a lot of these things. And it's, and it's related to how we uh, how this uh, deep submersible trip to uh, came up with Victor. Um, Victor Vescovo is the guy that, that uh, developed this submersible limiting factor. He himself had the passion to want to go dive the deepest place in all five oceans, which he did two years ago. And then uh, afterwards he's saying, now I've created this great tool. We need to, we need to use this for science. And, but that's still science is expensive to do with something that goes that deep. And so what he set up was a program where he invited the, many of us that were, uh, that he knew through the explorers club to join him in being basically patrons of science. Mm-hmm. And so by us going, by me going and being willing to help out as a mission specialist with some of the experiments that were being sent out to the, to the submersible by university students all over, we would help operate the science in the deep, Plus, we were supporting, in addition, we invited uh, scientists, uh, Victor really invited scientists from all the local areas around where these dive sites were, so that those countries, for example, could like, uh, uh, you know, the Mariana Islands could have one of the scientists from their islands to go down into their trench, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which which those individuals, much less their countries, you know, wouldn't uh, afford on their own. And so we're Subsidizing you know uh, global science—that's really important work that's being done—and that's still happening right now. So that yeah. that machine is now made you know yeah. close to pushing a hundred dives I think down to basically full ocean depth all around the world.
1: Is there like a lifespan on that? You know, is it like um, an aircraft where the airframes can only do certain amount of hours before they they're kind of you know too unsafe to go? So uh, are is that quite suddenly so they- the same?
2: It's close. So deep submersibles all have a cycle time before they have to be completely disassembled and inspected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what generally happens is the pressure hull, the what you might think was the airframe, is actually so durable, so overbuilt that those will generally last forever. You still want to inspect them and make sure there's no corrosion or any other joints you know, having sense. some oddity problem that you want to catch long before yeah. it becomes a real issue. Yeah. But the real wear and tear is on the stuff that's on the outside. The batteries that are exposed to full ocean depth pressure, cabling, the manipulator arm, cameras, lights, uh, sample trays, uh, those things are actually getting significant wear, both from the pressure increase and from physical manipulation. And so those just get changed out on a, on a rhythm. And if those fail, it's okay. You know, you, in fact, it's, it's not uncommon on space flights and deep submersible flights, uh, dives. It's, it's, you know, not only un- not only not uncommon. I would say it's actually almost guaranteed exactly. that there will be some sort of mal- some sort of malfunction with yeah. some of the equipment that's on, you know that's exposed uh, to the pressure. But the the, the essential things for survivability are, are way overbuilt.
1: It's mind-boggling, really, isn't it? You know, um, how do you start designing and then making uh, something that can uh, stay in shape? and, you know, support life down at those extreme pressures. Uh, you know, the, that trench is uh, you 36,200 feet, 10,929 metres. And, yeah. it, you know, we were working this out the other day, and Gemma lives on the coast, I live inland. So we we are that roughly that distance apart, and you would have been that down deep. And you kind of think, wow, I've been down just under 40 meters, and that's yeah. a long way, and you've been, ten, you know, it's just mine to, to actually try yeah. and compete. And what's it.
2: fascinating about that is to, first of all, I totally agree with that amazement. And, uh, but what's funny about this is, uh, uh, I've, I've, I have some videos I could send to you afterwards about how this was started. And for example, the, the, the video I had them give me that I saw originally when I was on board the ship is, they first sat down and said, OK, we think the, you, know, you, you want to make sure that it's big enough to hold two people. So you can have a pilot and a researcher.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You want to, you know, after that, you want to how close together can you fit and still not feel like you're going to be claustrophobic. So, you know, they set a couple of chairs up and they calculated that the interior diameter of about one point four meters would be the, the size, the minimum size. Because the smaller it is, the less thick the walls have to be, the less heavy it is the yeah. less costly all the rest of it becomes around mm-hmm. it. And so then what they did is they literally got a block of styrofoam and they went out in the parking lot behind their, you know, hangar that they build all stuff in. And they took somebody's 10-speed bike and turned it over upside down to where somebody could hand turn the pedals and the wheel would turn. And they put that big block of foam on a spindle. And then they took a router, a hand or just a shaver router, and they put it on a little half moon jig and they carved that piece of foam to mm-hmm. be the hull. And then they painted it with some you know, hardening you know, uh, yeah. cement and uh, carved out the inside. They made two of those. Uh, they mocked up the chairs on the inside. They said, yep, that's about right. And then they sent that original hull to Victor Vescovo's house and we- connected to the internet. And they started putting in all the display pads. And they, they mocked the whole thing up in mm. styrofoam. <laughs> and then once they had the whole thing, they thought, okay, yep, this is it. This We're going to go build this. Then they cast that thing out of titanium. And if there's another video that's online about them casting this this hull out of titanium where they take a, you know, a, a two meter-ish, uh, or maybe one, only a meter and a half, flat disc of nine centimeter thick red hot titanium. And they press it with a giant press into a hemisphere form.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: it is Awesome, and you go from these two extremes of here you are out in the backyard with a bicycle uh, to turn some foam, to then you have this you know fire and uh, you know literally you know flames and bangs and booms and presses that are you know bigger than tanks you know in here to form this thing, and what what you end up with is this monumentally tough. Uh, hull that that, di- that despite it being nine centimeters thick, it still shrinks by about half a centimeter. In fact, yeah. I put up a digital, I put up a digital tape measure on one wall to point at the other wall so that we can watch it as you go. As you can go, it's a good depth indicator because the whole thing is crushing smaller and smaller and smaller just by that.
1: <laughs> that must creak and groan a bit as well, do
2: it? No, it actually doesn't. The, the, in it? fact, what's, what's important about this hull is not only that it's thick, but that it's perfectly circular mm-hmm. it is 90 literally these are not exaggerations it's 99.99 percent perfect sphere yeah, and okay. if it was much less than that you would have it it would implode even as as strong as that is it would still implode mm-hmm. and so uh, uh being a perfect sphere is uh, is key to its survival also
1: yeah i kind of thought imagined it was you know uh more done on CAD and things like that you know all these things would be specially worked out and there'd be boffins at work you know getting it all exactly right and things like that you know yeah, right but, the start?
2: but a lot of it yeah but a lot of you want to see how does this feel right you need to know yeah. am i going to be claustrophobic am i going to be able to move my elbow around and turn oh, on and off yeah. the valves that i need and so the physical ergonomics are so important that yeah there are CAD drawings of everything ultimately too yeah but uh, but uh, but yeah, one of the first steps was let's go out in the backyard and carve some foam. I love that; that's brilliant.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, how did it feel like your descent down when you actually were inside? What were your feelings?
2: Well, you know, it, it's interesting. On the the deep dives, I've been in this other vehicle <clears throat> to only about only about six thousand meters, <laughs> um, where had a similar dive profile. It's you know about four hours down. Uh, four hours hanging out at the bottom and four hours returning to the surface. And uh, this one had almost that same, that same uh, timing,
3: Yeah. but
2: it's, but it's going down faster to, to make it, you know, twice as far almost, but it's, it's, it's designed more slippery vertically you might yeah. say. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, but so what's interesting about four hours in a submersible is you might think that there's not much to do for four hours because pretty much you, you, you leave the, the light behind, you know, within seconds, you know, you're, you know, you're down, you know, you're, you're down into the, you know, kilometer scale depth in minutes, you know, you're, it's, you're, you're in true blackness. Um, and, but, but on the, on this slower descent on these other vehicles, you're still actually glued to the porthole because you're seeing bioluminescent little bacteria and things, you know, go by the window. So there's still things to see that you really need to be paying attention to see in the limiting factor. You're actually descending at such a rate; things are just blowing by the window. So there's really you really can't see things going by the window. But there's still over four hours. Well, that sounds like a long time. Your depth is counting off so fast, and you're making call-ins to report your position. And there are three landers that are dropped ahead of you, but they're they're still reaching the bottom while you're going on your way to the bottom. And so you're pinging all these other low these uh, landers to see where their position. is. Sorry,
1: what's going down?
2: So, in addition to the submersible itself, the ship drops three, uh, what are called landers, basically three uh, non-motorized autonomous uh, platforms that just go sit on the bottom. And they both make it kind of an undersea GPS grid. Right. uh, But they also have lights and camera and baits and water sampling and things on them. And so, they're science platforms and navigation platforms
3: mm-hmm. and
2: so there's three of them that get dropped off the ship you know a couple hours before you start going down but it yeah, takes them yeah. hours to get to the bottom too so even though it yeah. takes you four hours so they're ahead of you so these three vehicles are going down ahead of you you're going down to the submersible everything is being managed you know, or at least they on uh, cable
1: or anything like that
2: no none of it's cabled um and in fact uh, uh yeah the safety mechanisms to get everything back up uh is obviously a big part of this whole enterprise mm-hmm. too and the design um, you know uh, there are things um, like on the the landers all have uh, these special bolts that uh, uh, corrosively burn through quite quickly so they are they're, they're t- you can actually put one on there it's time to however many hours of seawater exposure before it pops mm-hmm. and so um, uh, they all have, they all drop big weights and return to the surface that way. yeah the submersible has much more elaborate safety mechanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, normally you would drop some weights, uh, but let's suppose for some reason that didn't work or you're unconscious to, to hit the drop the weight button. Um, there's another set of weights that are held by electromagnets that, uh, if the batteries died, they would naturally fall away. Wow. There's another set of weights, or at least another release of those weights that happens. If you don't make a radio call every 15 minutes to report your position, it drops the weights um if you are uh if you're entangled in something like let's say the manipulator arms or the thrusters or batteries anything, anything that could get caught uh, you know uh, in in a foul in a cable those can all be ejected and dropped it would be also more as mm-hmm. weights and push it back up yeah even a lot of the external battery packs can be dropped and uh and by then you would have your buoyancy would be enormous and so you'd be um up, almost the same thing yeah mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, but it's you'd nice. be all right,
1: you'd be okay if you, because you're going to be inside the submarine. It's all at one
2: atmosphere. Inside, mm. it's managed to one atmosphere close enough. Mm. Uh, and in fact, you know, before it's plus or minus a tiny amount. I mean, there's a pressure equalization valve that you, you know, open prior to egress, but uh, uh, it's usually very, very close to one atmosphere. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so no, no problem of, of equalization on your body. Um, again, because there'd be no point, you know. Since, as you know, the reason why you said you'd been down to uh, forty meters or so is because any deeper than that, and you know, you start getting nitrogen narcosis. Or much deeper than that, oxygen itself starts becoming toxic. And, and that's only at you know ten atmospheres or something. And so we're down at a thousand atmospheres. So there's really no there's no crush advantage to yeah going up to 10 10 or 20 atmospheres because that that won't provide counter pressure on the hall of relevance and so you might as well not subject your body to that increased pressure
1: yeah yeah i did wonder how you know what emergency sort of things are built into the, these subs you know because it's not always covered and um but you know it's, it's interesting that there's so much thought gone into you know, recovery in the surface.
2: Well, let me tell you a story about the sub right over my shoulder here, the mirror submersibles. Uh, One of the first dives I did with the mirror submersibles was down to the Titanic.
1: Right.
2: And, and I had gone through with them also the same list of procedures, even though I was a guest on board the submersible, you know, you just want to know how does this operate? Why is it safe? Uh, In addition to the safety measures I've already mentioned that both those submersibles have, this also has a little hatch on the door that that pops open and you can send a balloon all the way to the surface with a rope that the rope isn't strong enough to lift the sub, but it would be enough for the other one of the two. It's a, it's a, it's a twin pair of subs. So the other sub could follow that down and try to help you out. And uh, so it has, you know, arguably even more, and you've got like three days of food and water, three days of oxygen and CO2 scrubbing and all the weights and stuff you can drop. So you're going like, Oh, I feel pretty safe in this submersible. Until we went down under the stern of the Titanic to look at the screws yeah. and when we were leaving, we bumped into the bottom of the Titanic and a bunch of debris comes down on top of the submersible and pushes us onto the seafloor. Hmm. And as soon as that happens, you're going, wait a minute, I don't care how much weight I drop. We are not getting up through the Titanic. Yeah. And not only that, but the balloon can't go up through the bottom of the Titanic. And not only that, but your acoustic communication phones are line of sight and we have no communication here under the stern of the Titanic. And so the bottom line result of all that is, you're stuck forever if 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 we were stuck, you're stuck forever, and no one's even going to know you were there. No. Yeah. You won't, they won't know what happened to you. And uh, fortunately, fortunately, there wasn't. There was mostly just clouds of you know light debris, not nothing
1: heavy. Because the reports on that is that that's slowly disintegrating, isn't it? It is, yeah because the pressure and the you know, the age of it has been down there for
2: Yeah, especially the pressure. There's, uh, you know, the, the rusticles that you see on photographs of it are actually bacteria, which is eating the steel. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are some places in some oceans where, uh, you know, wrecks of, whether wooden or metal wrecks, there's some places they are actually preserved pretty well by the cold and the deep and uh, lack of oxygen in some places cases, that sort of thing. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but in the case of the Titanic, it's in a location and conditions where it's, it's disintegrating actually pretty rapidly at this point.
1: Yeah. We were talking to John Chatterton last year about that, because he's, do you know John? Mm. And uh, he, he went down to the Titanic and um, uh, we were talking about the speed that boat must have been doing when that hit, because you kind of think the speed of that uh, crashing down, that must have been a hell of a thing to if you could have witnessed it. But we asked him, quite important question actually was what music he was listening when he went down to the titanic so what was you listening to when you was down in the mariana trench
2: Ah, uh, you know it's a uh, uh, one of the things we did we, we we were pretty busy but we did watch part of a movie uh <laughs> the, the, we have a uh, we always take a thumb drive with a movie down and i took das boat that you know yeah. the german world yeah. war ii movie where uh, they're, where they're being torpedoed and uh, uh, and and otherwise uh, fighting and risking and sinking in the in the bottom of the ocean. So anyway, that was that was that was my entertainment on the way down. I don't remember if I was actually listening to any music. Why Das Boot? Money. Out of
1: all the movies you could have had, why Das Boot?
2: Uh, I, that's actually been one of my favorite submarine movies. I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, just uh, I think it just uh, really didn't tell you about the the nitty gritty of the kinds of submersibles you wouldn't want to go in, the kind of submarines you wouldn't want to go in, but uh, yeah. 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 So when you, go
0: well, I was gonna say, when you actually got to the bottom, the seabed, the bottom of the Mariana Trench, how did it feel and did you see any signs of life or?
2: Oh yeah. you know What's interesting about that is even on Wikipedia, the w- Wikipedia is still slow on the uptake of life at the bottom of this depth. I mean, Wikipedia yeah. for the most part still says, there is no life at these depths, which is completely un- inaccurate. You know, it's uh, uh, life is actually incredibly bountiful down there. Mm. But one of the things that it took, you know, the first two divers that went down there, you know, the year before I was born, Jacques Picard and Don Walsh went down in the Trieste. Uh, then James Cameron went down about 20 years or so ago. Sure. Uh, and then and that's it up until limiting factor. And um, <clears throat> and so it's understandable that not much has been known about what's, what is really like that at the depth. And so the, the first thing to know about that depth is that the, the entire seafloor down here is covered with silt, thick, powdery silt. And the problem with that is, is that you can't even approach it without disturbing it. So it's actually very hard to stay near the bottom without kicking up clouds that immediately obscure your vision. So the best you can do is try to float neutrally above the bottom and then let the current sort of take you along and do as little other disturbing as you can um uh then what you find is that you begin to see trackways in that silt and you're going like wait a minute what what could be down here it's yeah. making these trackways so it looks like there's been little animals you know running back and forth across the bottom and you're going like the aliens, sorry yeah the aliens, the oh, aliens yeah. but uh but i was actually you're you're, you're going like wow well, there's clearly much more down here than you'd imagine to have made this these trackways and then you begin to notice things like. uh uh, there's a relative of a sea cucumber that I would really just say looks more like a squid and it's translucent, almost transparent.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and, it, and at first, you're thinking maybe there's little bits of plastic trash kind of floating and tumbling along the seafloor until you realize that there's a lot of them and they're all sort of the same. And then you begin to pay closer attention to them and you can see they've got tentacles and little uh, uh, fins that they're kind of flying, they're kind of floating and flying and tumbling along the seafloor. Uh, and, and then if you get over to one of the landers, which was one of the places we visited with the landers, and the landers go down with cameras, lights, and bait. And by having had bait at the bottom now for a few hours, they become the target for a much larger colony of life. In this case, the majority of what you see down there are something called amphipods. Mm-hmm. Uh, my best description of them, oh, I should have brought one up with me. I have some in my refrigerator. But uh, they, uh, they look like... Uh, little headless shrimp would be sort of my best analogy. Um, you know, they're blind. Uh, they look just like the tail of a shrimp. You know, if you really look closely at the front end, you can tell they have other eating apparatus, but they're really pretty hard to notice. It's really headless shrimp. And, uh, but they come from, you know, not exactly microscopic, very, very small, up to, you know, quite, quite large, you know, big ones, small, small lobster size uh, of these uh, amphipods that are, bountiful down there but again because they're blind it's actually fascinating to watch them zero in on the food source because they're you know they're doing dead reckoning with smells. So they'd be like make a pass by and you can see they overshoot the target then they come back by and kind of overshoot the target but closer and then you go back by and overshoot the target and closer till they finally manage to land on it and start munching away now, it's just fascinating and uh not on my dive but on um Uh, one of the other dives where they went further up the rocky sides, when you get finally to enough terrain to where that silt uh, is not covering the sides of a cliff, so you get exposed rock, whenever you Mm -hmm. find the exposed rock, then there's a whole bunch of other new life forms you see, uh, like uh, effectively tube worms and uh, uh, things that look a little bit more like crinoids, uh, but are really, again, more like tube worms. Uh, but uh, uh, a variety of other kinds of life show up there too. So, so yeah, at, at, even at the deepest place, there's actually quite a bit of life, and sadly, quite a bit of trash. So we saw yeah, plenty, plenty of trash all the way down the way there at the deepest really? point.
0: So, what sort of thing did you see? Is it plastic or
2: uh, plastics? Uh, and by the way, we did water and water sampling, mud sampling, and sampling the bodies. of These little creatures is also full of plastic. Yeah. So, uh, you know, microplastics is I think one of the biggest new, yet, yet discovered another new problem we're going to have to deal with as a, as a, on a global scale is, is plastic in the oceans. So, but in addition to the microplastics, in addition to the plastic bags drifting along on the seafloor, the There's other thing stuff. we saw was scientific trash, uh, specifically the cables ejected by ROV operators. So a lot of people that have been going down to these depths with tethered ROVs to take pictures, when they bring the ROV to the surface, they uh, what they not normally do, and I don't know why they, why this is the standard, but they disconnect the ROV and command it to surface, and they go pick it up on the surface. And that's seven miles of cable, instead of rolling it back up to use it again, they just cut the other end and drop the whole seven-mile-long nice. optical fiber cable at the bottom of the ocean. And nice. these are they're all over in the Mariana Trench. And Victor's been finding them in other places as well. In fact, there's parts of the trench he says he won't dive in anymore because the probability of sucking one up into the impeller of the submersible is, is so great. So and good. so they're actually getting ready to publish a, a, a study on this and, make a, and put a call out to have a moratorium on this practice of mm-hmm. injecting your ROV cables. Because those aren't no, are gonna decay away ever. No, and they're, they're doing them generally in the most scientifically interesting places by definition.
1: Shopping. okay i yeah like james shocked. uh first i've heard of that now surely there can't be you know those things must be traceable because how many people is there that can have that access to so many cables you know that, that yeah, and
2: and while i wouldn't want to call anyone out no I know. Yeah. specifically but but it, it is extremely l- le- likely it, it seems evident the, the group that left this particular cable that I saw, we landed on top of one of these cables ourselves when we ended up, when we got to the bottom, we were on a cable. And Victor had dove here six months ago and the cable was not there. And between six months ago and now, there was a Chinese group that had an ROV out here. And so, it's a reasonable speculation that that's where this particular came, cable came from. But by the way, they're not the only ones doing it. No. This is the standard practice for people who have these these deep ROVs. And people. so that's what has to really change. It's not to blame any one person, but to say, look, this cannot be the way we operate those uh, ROVs. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that'll be an eye-opener for a, a lot of people, because people are going down for exploration to like find life that have obviously got yeah. microplastics in, and then they're leaving...
1: That behind, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I don't get it. I, I just don't. It's shocking to hear, and you kind of. Yeah, think- well, I was, I
2: was very it surprised it too. Things. Because don't forget, a seven mile cable is yeah. seven miles long, and so you know you would see this curled up around us, and you are going like, "Wow, the loops that are going up and over." Because you know, some are just laying out flat, but some stick up, and you are going like, "Wow, that could get up into the into the thrusters." Yeah, and then you you see it go past you, and then you go on your way, and then here comes the cable again going past you again and then you come back to cable again and so it's how, it's,
1: how you know. big a cable we talk? what sort of diameter oh no it's
2: looking? yeah it's 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 the cable's pretty small you know it's, it's definitely you know no, it's definitely smaller as yeah. small or smaller than a charging cable for a, a phone yeah. probably smaller a little smaller it Must be but, it, but it's it. obvious and it's strong enough by the way don't forget you know if if this is what was holding you on the bottom the thrusters wouldn't lift that. I mean, if that was wrapped around a, a, a foul on a rock or something else on the ground and in your thruster, you wouldn't you're break not breaking it. that cable with a thruster. You might be able to break the cable by dropping all your weights, but then you're throwing away, you know, a few million dollars in batteries, you know, to, and maybe that wouldn't work. And so, you know, it's, it's actually a terrible, terrible problem that, you know, that we, the scientific community, uh, uh, the exploring community, really do need to put a call out to say this is not acceptable for divers and submersibles uh, submersible operators and ROV operators to leave behind this sort of trash it, it just with you know even just in the regular scuba committee you know, community you know if we were if we did anything in, in scuba diving where you would normally get to the bottom you've done with your dive time and you and you took off a you know, piece of plastic or rubber and and left it around a, a, a you know rubber ring around a Piece of coral every time we went down, you know that would that would be people would be outraged quickly and, and we would change it quickly. Yeah. And so uh, the same thing needs to be needs to be true for this operation with submersibles. Because
1: I think yeah. out, of, out of mind a little bit. Yeah.
0: And the thing is, it's not just the Mariana Trench where that will be happening. There's Everywhere. exploration all across our oceans. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: But that must be quite expensive as well. To, you know, surely that's got to be worth
2: reeling back. Well, that, apparently not. I would have thought <laughs> so too, but apparently not.
0: Yeah. No, no. So, Will, do you think you'll go back down to the Mariana Trench?
2: Well, I've, I've now made, um, you know, not, not quite ten, eight maybe deep dives to 6,000 metres or now deeper. Um, and so I very much like that. I don't know where they're going to that particular location. Mm. Um, uh, the only other place I've, the only other deep place I've been to twice was uh, hydrothermal vents the mid-atlantic ridge hydrothermal vents off the coast of uh, uh, of Portugal and the Azores right. um, and and uh, hydrothermal vents are incredibly fascinating places to go dive and some are shallow enough I don't know if it, it seems like scientifically there should be some in theory that would be scuba a because they're really yeah. just geysers that happen to be underwater yeah. and so there should be some at all depths I don't but I don't I don't know of any that I've heard of that are shallow enough to scuba dive to but uh but just like coral reefs are fascinating because of all the variety of life and activity that's the same thing for hydrothermal vents that you you would not get tired of making repeated dives uh down to vent sites or or visiting a variety of vent sites you know as you tour around the world
3: mm-hmm. but uh,
2: uh but i think most most other deep targets you know, uh if you get another chance to go that deep, which they're pretty hard, opportunities are few and far between, <laughs> and so uh, uh, probably better to pick a new location. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, amazing. So, yeah, great to have that opportunity. Yeah,
1: wow. So, uh, you, you mentioned before um, you you know you are pres- You got recently made president of the Explorers Club, and that's an org- organization you've been involved with uh, for some time. Um, how did that come about, you, you know, and uh, what does that mean? And what's, you know, have you got new plans for that?
2: Yeah, you know, the, uh, the Explorers Club itself was founded in 1904, so way back. Oh. And it was the, the early founders and members, you know, were the really the, the greats of the early golden age of exploration. You know, the people that went first to the North Pole, first to the South Pole, uh, you know, first to climb Everest, Sir Edmund Hillary was a member, you know, this that, that, that sort of thing. And, uh, and Explorers Club flags, which members take down on their, you know, they, they you can apply. And if it's a worthy you know, expedition, you can take a, an Explorers Club flag with you. You know, literally not only were the, was the flag itself taken on the first journey to the South Pole, on the first journey to the North Pole, uh, with Jacques Picard, uh, and Don Walsh on the first dive to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. It was with Apollo 8 around the moon, Apollo 11 landing on the moon, uh, uh, first crossing the Atlantic uh, by air, you know, all are basically any first worth its salt, you know, has had an explorers club flag along with it. And so, you know, uh, most astronauts are members. My father was a member. And so when I was a kid, I was more like, Hey, you know, uh, that's a cool club. I want to be a member too. (laughs) But to get in, you have to have done actual exploration, not a vacation into an unusual place. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going like, okay, well, you know, I, I like, you you know, I'd gone on some frankly, vacations, but they were pretty extreme. There were things like dugout canoeing down the Amazon and most, that's not the typical you know, vacation trip. And so it was actually relatively easy for me to describe this, what in honest terms was really more of a personal desire to go. It had really much less scientific purpose, but I enjoyed it and I could talk about it as a naturalist a bit, uh, but it was enough to let me, for them to let me in the front door of the Explorers Club. And, uh, and then when I got in, I realized I was in with this group of like-minded people. And so I, I fell in love with the club itself. That's how I helped build these companies that have helped open up these extreme places for not just me to go, but for many. Yeah. And, I, and that's where the commercial space flight revolution was largely you know, discussed, designed and hatched, was there at the Explorers Club. And, so, uh, and, and then ultimately I've re- recently served on the board for about 10 years. Uh, and then, um, uh, I recently kind of had my, my third, at least temporary retirement out of the games industry. And so it was a good time for me to consider taking the role of president of the explorers club, which is a, it's a, it's a volunteer position, but it's full time, you know? So you, uh, you have to be at a position in your life where you're willing to set aside any career aspirations for a few How's years.
1: Retirement going. Sorry. How's retirement going?
2: Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty busy retirement. And uh, but it, but it, but as much as it means you're not earning an income, uh, it actually really does open a lot of a lot more exploration doors because you get invited on all kinds of great trips. So, uh, sure. uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to take advantage of, of, of that uh, opportunity, of course.
3: Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: you,
3: you, well,
1: if you ever come home one day and you go to your wife, Got an idea of something I'm going to do? Does she suddenly go, "Oh no, what's next"?
2: <laughs> no, actually, well, she's she. Well, first of all, she's a bit of an explorer herself, uh, more than a bit. Uh, but we have different exp- exploration passions. So uh, she actually scuba dives as well, but she's not as passionate about it as I am. Um, her her exploration interests are much more uh, sociological, uh, you might say. So she enjoys like uh, one of the first exploration trips we did together as a family was we took our kids when they were six months old and two and a half years old into the mountainous regions between Cambodia, Thailand, and Laos, hiking into the mountains where we hired a couple of locals to help carry the kids. And we would show up in these little villages, not speaking the local languages, but our kids were the icebreaker where they would, they were just excited to see little blonde haired kids and they would take them out of their Western clothes, put them in their local clothes we'd get all kinds of great pictures of their kids playing in the, you know, with these little villagers in the local attire as if they were part of the family. And, uh, and we had a great time with, you know, very small kids in very well places, but that's really my, my wife's passion. So what we do is we, we flip back and forth between whose, whose trip it is. And, uh, and, and sometimes also she'll just nod out of some of mine. Like, you know, I, I took her close to the North pole once. And then she said, you know, that is really just, so cold it is not pleasant and so and there's no people you know there's just ice and uh, so so next time you can go and so i took the kids with me to the north pole but my wife didn't go on that particular trip because she was like I've, I've done the cold thank you and uh uh and similarly uh when i went recently into the interior of a volcano we actually overnighted in the caldera of an active volcano oh, wow. and, uh, and that was another one my wife's going you know what I'm not going with you that one. And by the way, you cannot take the kids.
0: <laughs> so how old are your children now?
2: Now they're uh, six and eight.
0: And are they following kind of your exploration?
2: They sort of switch as to where their enthusiasms lie and uh, at different ages and depending on you know what their friendship circles are like. Uh, they're both very adventurous. They've been to, like I said, the uh, Southeast Asia, they in down. very remote parts of El Salvador, uh, they've been down, uh, the Nile and, different parts of Egypt and out in the deserts in Egypt, uh, they've been to the North Pole. They're actually the youngest two ever to the North Pole at the age of, uh, three and a half and five and a half. And, uh, uh, my three and a half was still in diapers. So was in, in, you're camping in diapers at the North Pole. (laughs) Um, but, um, uh, but, and, and so they're, you know, they're, they're definitely game travelers. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, my, my youngest son has has gone from being easy to pack because he was literally a baby to, frankly, it was kind of a pain at the North Pole because he often didn't want to do anything. So he just kind of sit there and we have to literally just pick him up and carry him to back when we were in, uh, uh, you know, going down the Nile. He is, uh, 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 oh, in fact, there was, a, there was excuse me, there's one more I missed, which was Ethiopia. Uh, you know, we were in Ethiopia and uh, uh, we were near a village where the children of the village, half of them were wearing no clothes at all. And my son kind of was, was looking at himself at the age of maybe four. And he was like, well, why am I wearing clothes? And he literally just took off all his clothes. And it was okay. like, okay, you want to be, he want to be like the name, like the locals. And then he was out and there was a dry riverbed and there were these deep holes in the, in the riverbed, because people had been digging down to find fresh water. And mm. he went up to one of these holes and he's like, well, I'm going to go dig for some fresh water. And he starts digging in the, empty hole that has already been you know long ago dried out and uh and the other kids are looking at him with curiosity and uh and i'm like saying ronan this is an old hole i'm sure there's no water here and the other kids were seeing what he's trying there it's like shaking their head no but he is not going to be stopped and he digs down until he finds water and when he gets to water, all the local kids get all excited and they send to town for burrows and bottles and jugs and they all come out and start getting water. They all dig with him down to get out the water and they, he helps the village fill up with water for the next you know week or however long it lasts. And so uh, uh, so that's his full cycle. He's, he's uh, very stubborn, very independent, but would not give up on digging for water and he actually found it. You know, so, so, uh, so he's also seen the joy of success, of persistence. Persistence
1: always pays off, you
2: know.
0: Yep, we always say that, don't we? So, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So, just going back to space, did you train in the neutral buoyancy lab? Because we haven't spoken to. I, you.
2: I did. Yeah, uh, and in fact, even though I met my now wife right after my flight, so but I took her back to Star City outside of Russia, so she could kind of catch up on this part of the uh, exploration history, and so we did it together as well. We did the neutral buoyancy t- uh, training in the Russian hydro lab. Right. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, that's great fun. That's a, uh, it's uh, well, I found it to be hard work. Uh, interestingly, the, the doctors for both the, uh, times I was in the hydro lab, uh, would also say I found it hard work. Uh, but they would also say my wife did not find it that hard of work. So <laughs> she actually did very well in the neutral buoyancy lab. I've, you know, I find, you know, moving the suits, uh, when they're pressurized is always a bit of a struggle, but, yeah. For whatever reason, my wife was a star at it, and they were advising her that she should come and become a cosmonaut, become a Russian cosmonaut, because her talents were strong.
3: Yeah, yeah that's big fun. Yeah.
1: Did I read that your wife is also involved in um, the American government uh, on the space, um, space Force or
3: something?
2: Uh, close. Well, she, she has been involved in uh, politics uh, both as a, a fundraiser for various candidates. She's been on a lot of the policy generation groups. She's now on a NATO advisory board uh, mm-hmm. doing specifically some stuff on oceans There, she's mm-hmm. working on um, a digital, a digital ocean pro- project yeah, right now um, where uh, uh, for uh, really just if you think of the Current state of the world and the trans, not only just transatlantic relationships, but just if 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 we as humanity can basically build a uh, uh, sensors globally in our oceans, from seafloor to surface, that then transmit back via satellite, presumptively, we'll be able to monitor oceans both from a trade and commerce and military standpoint, but more importantly from a scientific standpoint, that same same sensors. Are yeah. going to bring back temperature, salinity, uh, movement, animals, all that stuff will will also come back with that, and that'll really help us manage uh, whether it's global warming or whether it's the stocks of uh, uh, life uh, and uh, pollution in the oceans. This uh, a, a global network would really help us understand this very important, you know, very endangered at the moment uh, resource we have. So, uh, you know, I, I even think here on my on my desk I have some of the. Yeah, you know, the stuff that's uh, that we were talking about, you know, early with some stuff coming out of the UK, actually, the uh, you know, NLA International Blue Economy Solutions and Verimar uh, uh, situational awareness and fisheries, and all the there's lots of other stuff for uh, how to monitor the seas effectively.
0: Yeah. So when you were in space and you actually saw Earth as this sphere, how did you feel? Because obviously. You- with everything that's going on in the world, and you're up there viewing it from that distance.
2: Yeah, you know, it's fascinating that, uh, that you know, my father, even though he was an astronaut and had what the experience my father described to you, he never described it the way, because again, he's Spock, so he never described things in this passionate emotional way, but traveling in space is a phenomenally, uh, deeply impacting uh, life event. And, and, and what's interesting about it is that it's not from any one view of the earth from space. I don't think, Mm -hmm. you know, and and the view from space is phenomenal and floating around in space is giddy and joyous for every moment that you're up there. But because you're in orbit, you know, you're going at 17,000 miles an hour. uh, And that means you go all the way around the earth in about 90 minutes. That means you see a sunrise or a sunset every 45 minutes that means you cross whole continents in maybe 20 minutes, yeah. but 20 minutes is still not instantaneous, right? I mean, if you thought of traveling across the United States in 20 minutes, you'd get pretty bored looking out the window of an airplane and, or, or watching Google Earth scroll by, you'd go look at something else after five minutes. But when you're actually in space, 250 miles up floating over looking down, it really does feel like there's a fire hose of information about the earth that we live in, just pouring into your mind just by looking. And that's whether, you know, you can see the edges of all the tectonic plates. You can see how uh, cloud weather forms and is building and moving. Uh, You can see how the different uh, depths of the water and so things like the shallow seas are warmer and so you get a lot more clouds and get more chaotic uh, weather formations. You see how volcanoes around the world make heat sources that Pop little, punch little holes in the clouds, which is kind of cool. You see all the pock marks from all the meteorite impacts, you know, asteroid impacts down through the years. You see pollution. You see forest fires. You see uh, uh, dams on all the rivers. You see deserts all pumping up fossil water to grow crops. You see the clear cutting of every forest, you know, on the planet. You just just you just see all this stuff. You're just going like, wow, this is captivating. Just look out the window. And after a few days and and, um, maybe a hundred orbits, you saw, or at least when I saw a place I knew well, which was I grew up in Texas. So I saw Houston where I grew up, Galveston where I used to go to the beach, uh, Austin, Texas, where I lived at that time, the area between it that I'd hiked and biked and camped. And so I knew knew it could be proverbially like the back of your hand. Uh, And suddenly you go like, wow, I now know the true scale of the entire earth by direct observation mm-hmm. and suddenly literally at that moment i had a physical reaction where you literally shuddered and it felt the closest example i can say is when it felt like you're in a movie where they'll dolly the camera back but zoom the lens in or the actor stays the same size in the hallway but the hallway kind of you know the scary movie style you know kind of collapses around them as i was looking at the earth the earth didn't change size out the window but your cut con- your conception of the scale of the earth and your relationship to it changes profoundly and forever mm-hmm. and the world is now suddenly where you know i literally when i get on like somebody said the other day we're going to do a big exploration summit in portugal this summer he says hey you want to go to portugal you know next friday and it's like you know i just want like yeah that's nobody's traveling halfway around the world is like well, that's no big deal it's only halfway around this tiny little planet and so i i used to go like wow halfway around the world you know that's like that's a long way away i'm like no it's not none of these things are very far away and so it really it really changes your sense of uh, the rarity and specialness of the one tiny place we have to live, in. and and you and you see directly how easy it is for us to pollute the whole thing. You can see that easy from space. One little yep. tiny point source forest fire, polluting you know entire countries with soot, and you're going like, well, of course all of our cars can pollute this air air pocket that we have. I mean, it's easy to see.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, it must be well grounding and yeah very yeah.
1: really impactful it is awesome because i think um hearing you say that because i think that you know you are one of the exceptions of what you've done because you've you've been to the deepest part you've, you know space been to the north poles the south the north pole the south pole you know and uh you have got that all over viewpoint yeah. you've had it right. and um And not you know there's people in charge of running countries who've not had that viewpoint and should have really and maybe politics and uh a lot of things would change if they did
2: no i agree with that you know as soon as i had this what's called the overview effect in space i was going like wow you know if half a percent of the earth's population had this opportunity it would profoundly change you know the future of history uh future course of humanity And uh, but it's actually very it's expensive and difficult to do still. I mean that's that's changing hopefully, but um, you know I was the I think exactly 483rd person to have orbited the Earth, and uh, we're now about 550 or so, and that's still a pretty darn small number for seven billion people. And uh, but but we're but but the new technologies that are that are evolving now, like uh, you know prior to the year 2000. 100% hundred percent of people who flew to space were government uh, you know astronauts and cosmonauts yeah since 2000 and up to today there are seven of us and one of the seven of people who have flown under their own recognizance to space and as of today going forward the majority of flights that are manifested to go to space are all are privately funded and mm-hmm. so we, we' now have completely switched so for, henceforth, the government is still going to lead us to all the new places like if you want to go figure out can we even get to mars or you know nasa and ESA and others or russia and china they're going to send the probes and the robots and you know the first maybe even the first waves of people there to see if and how it's even possible but once but once countries have said yep we've been there well then either there's either science or value of some kind for private industry to pick up and go do. Or no one should go back. You know what I mean? We should go on to go on to the next new place. And so to the degree that there is value for humanity to be in space or on the moon or on Mars, ultimately it's going to be private industry that that fills that gap. Yeah. And um uh, I do believe there's value in those places. So I think that's the way that's coming now.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, no, it's interesting times.
1: And none of this would be possible without technology. And um you know, and you've been in, involved in technology all your life. And, you know, you, how that's all now accelerating and helping us explore all these different parts of the world. But, and, as, yeah. but as
2: you know, even just circling back on scuba, as you know, the compared to the J-valve, which was an incredibly, it worked, you know, uh, Jacques Cousteau's invention of scuba tanks, you know, was a brilliant uh, innovation. Right. But the refinements that have gone on since are pretty darn important. You know the the foundational safety of scuba has improved dramatically, and the ability to, to take scuba into places, whether it's like in caves or deeper and deeper, or longer and longer durations, or making fewer uh, bubbles or intrusions with rebreathers, so you can get so you can observe scientifically things with less disturbance. You know all these things uh, are are increasing rapidly. And that's allowing, you know, whether you're a pleasure diver or you're a scientist doing research, the tools we have now available for SCUBA are way better. You yeah. know, I just think of, you just think of the, the film and video that comes back, uh, you, know, yes, from, you know, that we see on documentaries on television these days. I mean, it's mind-blowing the, the level of, of, uh, of access that uh, people have gotten. Uh, for some reason, just bottom of my head, you know, the, the, the movie I'm sure you all have seen too, My Octopus Teacher. Uh, yeah. Of uh, the guy that spent a year with an octopus underwater. I mean, it's like just astounding, just astounding. Uh, you know, uh, uh, understanding we are pulling out of this such important resource of what's happening just below the surface that water that covers two thirds of our planet. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's so unexplored as well. It's...
2: Completely. Even even now that we have something these tools like limiting factor that has made an, an impressive hundred dives or so, uh, it's still you know, 80, I don't know what the percentage is that people rattle around these days, but something on the order of 80% of the ocean is completely unexplored. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, you, you know, we have plenty to, to, uh, to yet find out.
0: Yeah, keep everybody occupied and yeah, for mm-hmm. the future. So that kind of leads us onto another question. If you could take three people down to the Mariana Trench or to the bottom of the ocean, they don't need to be, they can be anybody from life, past, present, who would you choose to take? Oh,
2: yeah, that's an interesting question. So, you know, of course, I would fall back on my family first, but I'll I'll, uh, I'll assume they've been uh, for the purposes of the of this question. Um, you, you know, what I think what I think is interesting is when, when I went to space, um, uh, Alan Bean, who flew with my dad on Skylab and had previously been to the moon. Um, wrote me a very nice letter. And and the letter he wrote in said, hey, Richard, I'm I'm happy that you're going to space because I know you've been trying to go your whole life. And so congratulations, you made it. But I'm also happy that you are going to space because unlike your father and I that were hired because we either test pilots or scientists who are Spock-like and don't communicate, (laughs) you you are more of an artist who uh, understand the science, but also know what what to bring back and how to bring it back and how to share that with other people. And so I actually think that that if I was going to, again, back to the Mariana Trench, I would take uh, scientific poets. And, and I mean that metaphorically in the sense of you, you really, we need some of the, we need the early explorers into these really rare places to both be good observers from a scientific perspective, but also then be strong communicators to be able to uh, share that with people. And so, you know, if I was gonna pick historically, I'd pick like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, you know, he'd, he'd be number one on my list. And by the way, <laughs> He's sort, of, he's sort of the mascot of my family. He's on my my dad's space patch and my space patch and my parents built museum, Leonardo's Discovery Warehouse. But that artist scientist is is something I'm very passionate about about saying. And so if I had to pick somebody uh, more modernly, you know, I might even pick somebody who's not an oceanographer. I would think of somebody like there's a cosmologist by the name of Brian Green that I know here in town who does incredible talks about Einstein and physics in a way that, makes you really just go fall in love with that aspect of science and so i think as an observer and communicator he would be incredibly inspired by those depths and would do a phenomenally good job speaking and writing about it both for scientific journals and to the general public Mm.
0: yeah yeah and it is again it comes back to that inspirational sort of making it contagious to the future generations
1: Yeah. yeah might be wrong and i often am but I've got a feeling, you think just thinking about uh Da Vinci, he was he very uh he drew uh in his time uh, one of the earliest uh suits for diving.
2: That's true. That's exactly right. And um uh uh, uh yeah, and I, I think it was a uh effectively a hookah rig. Uh, yeah. it was uh, it was an early um, you know, kind of a forerunner to the 50s era brass helmet um, yeah. kind of kind of dive suit. But yeah, that's right. He did.
1: Yeah. So I thought he'd, he'd done something. But it's, it's right. It's that crossover between artistic work and science. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good mix. So um, what would be your favorite marine animal?
2: Oh, no, unquestionably the narwhal. I'm a huge narwhal fan and, okay. and I've been, I've been, I've actually never seen one in the wild, uh, but I have a couple of tusks, you know, that I've collected, yeah. you know, uh, down through the years. And uh, uh, they, uh, but as uh, uh, y- you know, the it, I just find them as a the creatures are just fascinating, you know, the even down to the, we have a fellow member of the explorers club that studies them. And so is something you may already know, but I didn't until I had these discussions is the narwhal's tusk. Of, you, of course, is a really a tooth, but, uh, but you may not know that the one tooth that remains is the only tooth that they now have in their mouths. The rest no longer form. And that one starts growing forward, of course, but it doesn't come out of the mouth. It actually grows through their lip and it doesn't grow because there's naturally a hole there for it to come through. It actually grows and pushes literally through their flesh until it emerges out, out of their mouth. And so it doesn't sound like a very comfortable way to end up no, with a tusk but uh uh oh, and i can't no, remember no. if it's right-handed or left-handed but i mean it's also probably not dead center no. and uh and so it's just the, the whole thing about how they evolved in this but you know uh evolution is a is a beautiful mystery you know for, by any mechanism but it's but it's great fun to see it in places you can see it like in the, uh in the galapagos where you can see the turtle shells and you go like oh yeah they had to reach up so that makes sense but then you look at the narwhal going like wow how did that come about
1: <laughs> i often tell my kids nature finds a way if there's a problem Nature finds a way, and things happen for a reason. And you're right. and Because those tusks, aren't they about a couple of meters long?
2: A couple of meters long, and despite the fact that they're a tooth, they are an incredibly uh, sophisticated sensory organ. And so they have, uh, you know, like electric eels or some other, uh, um, you know, even some sharks, you know, that have sensor arrays on their bodies uh, to detect movement or uh, electrical signaling you know so so i understand does the narwhal's tusk and so it's uh you know it's not meant there for you know swordplay it's yeah. it's really a sensor to be sweeping through the the water as i understand it
0: mm. yeah. amazing yeah It'd be great to see one in the wild as well wouldn't it
2: yeah and you know and, and when you were asking me what my favorite was you know i was also again going back to that same movie of my octopus teacher going like you know there oct- you know we, there are just some amazing creatures in the deep yeah you know, not just, you know, morphology wise and lifestyle wise, but also just from uh, uh, an intelligence wise. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the fact that octopi are, 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 you know, so profoundly intelligent uh, and, and yet only at least, uh, you know, per the uh, documentary, my octopus teacher, you know, only live for one uh, cycle of, of giving birth to the next generation. You know, it's like, oh, so I guess the, 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 the beauty and tragedy of uh, of a one life cycle life, you know, uh, is uh, is really amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: No,
0: it's interesting. Yeah. I think it's
1: amazing how they change color.
2: Yeah, and and, you know, and bioluminescence, and you know, there's just there's just all these solutions uh, to all the problems of pressure and light and uh, food gathering and you know uh, camouflage. It's, all these things are just a profound.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you think we're, you know, a scientific world, and there's still so, so much to learn as well. It's good. I
2: like that. Yeah. It's in fact, that was actually one of, the, one of the lessons of my childhood that I think scuba divers in particular, I think most people who get out of the outdoors can appreciate, which is just how easy it is for any of us who decide we want to, to participate in truly cutting-edge scientific discovery. You know, the, and the, the metaphor I always tell kids when I'm in t- talking in schools is I'm going like, well, you know, there are giant meteorites like every 65 million years that kill off dinosaurs and you know, most of life on Earth. Hope none of those hit anytime soon. But smaller ones are more common. And, you know, like I go on meteorite hunts in Antarctica and you find things that have fallen over the last you know, dozens of years. And but if you go down all the way to the size of a grain of rice, they're falling all over the place all the time. You just don't notice because they're the size of a grain of rice, but they are raining on top of everyone's homes all day, every day, all every year. And if they land on your roof, which if your house has been there for a few years, they have, that means they're either still on the roof or they've washed off the roof with the, with the water down to a downspout and maybe down onto the dirt or wherever they, wherever that downspout ends up. And so if you go out to the ground or the sidewalk where that downspout ends and you go out there with a magnet and you pick up what you what's magnetic along that debris. You'll pick up first a bunch of junk, you know, little screw heads and other bits of metal. But if you take all that off and you look at it under a microscope, you will also find meteorites. And you can tell they're meteorites because they're about the size of the greatest sand. They're made out of iron. They're covered with rust. They're pockmarked from their reentry speeds. And and so literally anyone can go out and find rocks from space just by choosing to look properly. That's
0: a revelation. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. So go do it. You need to go do it. And so, uh, but, but even, but then if you go like, uh, if you have uh, 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 if you have a hot springs, you know, somewhere near you, which lots of they're all over the earth. So there, you can probably find one in in your time on earth. You can probably take a vacation to hot springs. You can probably find extremophile bacteria that no one has cataloged there because even though we now know about it, there's not that many people out there cataloging it. And so you can, you yourself can go empty out a water bottle, scoop it up, send it to a lab and ta-da, new life. And so, <laughs> you know, so scuba divers are doing the same thing. You, as the, as the equipment gets better, just think about the photographic and video equipment as the equipment gets better. If you are the person who is willing to go, you know what, I'm going to sit up all night for every night for a month on this coral reef. And I'm going to sit there with a the light. And I'm going to watch that coral or hole the ground or tube worm you will probably find things about their life cycle that has never been known to science Mm -hmm. ever. And so we can all do it. And so, you know, there's tons more to find so much so we can all go find something that has never been discovered. We'll
1: be explorers. Yeah.
0: Yeah, everybody's got a purpose. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So our final question is, if you could put something on a billboard that the whole world could see, it can be an image, something, yeah, you and know, obviously non-commercial, but a statement or an image of a message that you want the world to see. What would it be?
2: Ooh, that's tricky too. Um, you know, I I think it would have to be. I'd have to think of an a way to try to impart uh, the result of the overview effect as quickly as you could, and so it might be. Um, something like a view of the earth from space, but it would have to include then a message that would compel people to go find this view, the the real view themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, uh, you know, something like, you know, you need to see this from here. Uh, And, you know, maybe a a shot of looking down from the space station or spacecraft back at the earth. And because I, because I really think that's the, you know, if you, if you want to change hearts and minds quickly, that's, that's not an easy way to do it. But by the way, we've been trying to change the hearts and minds of everybody on earth for a long time to take better yeah. care of this planet. And it is a tough road to hoe. Uh, hope, I think we're beginning to, you know, it's almost too late, <laughs> I would argue. Mm-hmm. And we're maybe beginning to turn the corner, you know, hopefully. Uh, but we definitely didn't turn the corner early enough to make the problem easy. We're mm-hmm. turning it late enough to where at the very least it's going to be very hard. And uh, uh, and so I, I think the more we can get people to find their way to give them their give themselves this overview effect, then the easier that battle would be for us all to decide to take care of this one tiny special planet that we have.
0: Yeah. yeah, and again, it's everybody. No matter how small their effort, it makes a difference.
2: Well, you know, in fact, it's it's essential. I mean, it, we're we're at, we're at a stage now to where you know I believe we're going to have to do industrial scale. Carbon sequestration, in addition to becoming uh, zero polluting, uh, you know, pretty much across the board as quickly as we can, mm-hmm. and to the degree we miss getting to zero or that it's hard to get to zero, it means the more money we're gonna have to spend on this industrial scale, you know, cleanup, whether mm-hmm. that's plastics or CO2 or you know any number of other you know pollutants or problems, um, th- it's gonna it's gonna get enormously expensive to pick it pick it pick it up after the fact. It's going to be much much cheaper if we can just all decide. You know what? Let's let's move to paper straws. Hey, guess what? Let's uh, uh, let's make sure that everything we throw in the tr- trash is compostable. Hey, let's uh, let's just make sure. You know, just the, the, this sequence of changes, some of which sound easy, but all of which I, I actually argue too that we need better guidance on how to find the answers. And, and what I mean by that is, when I got back from space, first thing I did is I changed out all my lights to LED, thinking hey, I'm going to save electricity. This is a good thing. And by the way, it does save electricity, and that is a good thing. But after I did that, I then put electrical probes on all my circuits to know how much electricity I'm using. And it turns out the lights are almost irrelevant compared to air conditioning. And, And the Texas house where I was when I did that, that was almost irrelevant compared to all the water movement I did from a well to purification to a pool to a pond to watering my lawn watering was three times as expensive as my air conditioning, which was three times as expensive as all the electric juices in my house. And so the lights were kind of the wrong place to start.
3: Yeah.
2: And the easiest place to start was turn down the number of hours I circulate my pool. And that was a relatively easy change and saved the majority of energy that I wanted to save. And yeah. so uh, we need good data for us to be good stewards of this earth. And we're only going to do that is if we all get out there and look, and we need people to go out and explore and Bring back what they find and whether that's an individual scuba diver or you know the nato industrial military complex you know we got to bring back this data so that we can really understand what we have and what the right lovers are to try to, to 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 make the bigger changes that are needed and mm-hmm. all of us to stop exacerbating the problem
0: exactly mm-hmm. yeah no that's great really good that's
1: brilliant. It's been you know it's been really formative and uh interesting shocking hearing about that cable um you know and you know thoroughly really good uh an in interesting conversation with you and uh, i want to say thank you very much for that uh, oh, I, do one, I do have a question uh actually is you know for someone you know who has done the things that you've done uh what's next
2: oh you know it's funny uh, you know there's still so Where's much to going? do there's still so much to do here on earth you know i'm a. Uh... Uh, my next two trips coming up. You know, I'm going down to the uh, Weddell Ice, uh, this the Weddell Sea, where it's generally covered with ice, where the Shackleton's Endurance sunk to go uh, on expedition back there. Here in the upcoming year, I'm headed to Little Island of Pitcairn, where the mutiny on the Bounty mutineers ended up uh, to help with some DNA research of some of the grave sites out there. Uh, uh, you know, and, and as we know, the majority of the oceans are still unexplored. So there's just Mm -hmm. an enormous amount of work to still be done here on earth. But of course I'm, you know, I, I keep wanting to go to further and further extremes too. So, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, out of lower, low earth orbit to the moon or Mars or asteroids, I hope to do some of that. Uh, and, and, you know, who knows some of the extreme might be to start digging a borehole that goes deeper than the Mariana Trench someday to kind of even go deeper, you know, who knows knows exactly who knows where it's going to end up. But, uh. There's, there's always new uh, places, uh, new frontiers to go explore.
0: Yeah. Well, I think for our listeners, you know, it's been totally inspiring and people, you know, everything is limitless. Everything is an opportunity.
2: Well, I, I thank you guys too, you know, uh, so ever since we first made contact, you know, some weeks ago, uh, and I've had a chance to really uh, not only see more about YouTube, but also from your followers and other folks too, I knew that we were kindred spirits and uh that we'd have a, a fun conversation so this was big fun for me too i'm always happy to come back uh so uh uh and if you need any wrangle uh, if, you know you, you had uh, my commander mike fink on earlier i know uh one of my dear friends so uh and if you need, need any help tracking down any of of uh, my other crewmates or anything like that let me know i'm happy to happy to help out yeah
3: Brilliant. i
2: appreciate no,
0: that nice it's yeah it's been really great meeting you yeah
2: yeah uh, thank you
0: um, and just one other question. If people want to learn more or hear more about yourself, have you got like a website or the exploring? Yeah, so there's
2: richardgarriott.com is sort of uh, uh, it covers my gaming stuff and my exploring stuff. It's probably a year out of date. but It's close enough. And, uh, and then, of course, there's my book that was out, uh, Explore Create, which you can find on Amazon or wherever you like.
0: Yeah, that's fine. That's that's great because we'll put a link to that on the show notes. Yeah,
2: and uh, and you already said uh, uh, on social media, I know that the 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 trendy kids or at least my kids are not on Twitter. Nor, nor Facebook. They're on the uh, you know, I don't even know what they're on a the way other things. But I'm still Twitter, still my number one social media hub. It's I good. find yeah. it. I, I find it. You know, since people can only ask a short question and they can only expect a short answer, that it lets me communicate with more people that way. So it's it's a functionally you know what I need. Uh, but uh, you can send people there to at Richard Garriott Also,
0: yeah, perfect. No, That's really, really interesting. And thank you for your time. That's
2: great. Yeah. No, oh, of course, my pleasure. I'm sorry it took us so long to connect, but I'm really glad. That's we did. Fine. No,
0: no, yeah. no, no. It'll make a really great podcast. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay,
1: perfect. I look forward to it. Thanks. Stay in contact. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. You know. Absolutely. And I'm glad we've done it. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah.
0: Thank thank thanks so much. And enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Yeah. Bye.
2: Bye. Thank you.
1: we're back we're back so uh <laughs> yes jen uh that how good was that i
0: know it's just amazing what
1: a man yep i hope good. you all enjoyed that uh as much as what we did uh we thoroughly enjoyed talking to richard and do you know what there's a few bits i've got to take away from that and yes. uh, you know and the main thing it was quite a shocker why haven't i seen this before why haven't we heard this about about these Who's leaving seven miles of cable?
0: Well, it's not just like massive cable. It's cable like on your phone, isn't it? Like the thickness of your phone. Yeah. To, on the bottom. Can you the, imagine that? Yeah. It's a, yeah, I think it will be, be good. But if,
1: that's got to be a, worth something, is not it? That, mm-hmm. as a thing.
0: Seven miles worth.
1: Seven, can you imagine, you know, if you listen to this, imagine, where, you know, between where you live and seven miles away, uh, and imagine a piece of cable that long just continuous piece being snipped of... at the back of the boat and dropped
0: yeah
1: and that's gone down all that way
0: yeah and how long it took to get down there and it's not going to decompose it's
1: just and you're saying there's na- and it's quite sad that you know this piece of the planet which you know is you know until very recently has n- never seen human life you know the animals down there
3: mm.
1: never realized that we existed
3: no
0: we've created an, a brand new environment for them with those cables
1: and straight away straight away we're leaving cables and things like that and people go in there in the name of science, in the name of research and
0: conservation, conservation
1: yeah. and all that. And they're doing that.
0: And they're leaving their litter. It's just like someone having a McDonald's and throwing it out the window.
1: Yeah, but I was, you know, other, other fast food well, uh, outlets are, outlets available, are yes. available. But <laughs> for some reason with them and others, it says at the bottom, you know, it says at the bottom of the cartons, it, you know when you finish with these cartons you chuck it out your car window do you be, mean, free it, says, and be gone. it says that at the <laughs> yeah. bottom of each of the mcdonald's cartons Did you know that?
0: no and it shouldn't
1: no um, exactly it don't no but anyway, anyway yes. we digress yeah. the point of it is who's leaving this stuff in there
0: yeah i think people need to be accountable for it, it does yeah, you
1: know so. but okay. there we go you know it's not just there we know we we all know don't we that plastic waste is creeping into all parts the, 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 of the globe and um, you know they found it up in the deepest lake yeah uh, in the mountains in the mountains haven't yeah. yeah. they they found yeah. it at the top of everest and now we know it's at
0: the deepest point in our
1: earth yeah mm-hmm. which is quite sad you know so yeah. also just look on uh richard's twitter feed as well um, if you are on the Twitter account, mm-hmm. have a look. There's some really interesting photos. Uh, Richard had some cups. Um, in the
0: Mariana
1: Trench? Yeah, they're poly- well, they're polystyrene cups that were painted by schools.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And he had them in a bag on the outside of the submarine.
0: Right.
1: To show what would happen. And it's worth to do with the pressure, the immense pressure and i presume they then got given back to the schools because you know, <laughs> they decorated these cups um and go on his twitter feed and have a look at these photos that's really impressive. interesting yeah yeah some, re- some really good um it's just quite surprising really you know that it has that effect the pressure has that effect
0: yeah okay well we'll have a look have a yeah. look and if you're on the intel app
1: can I just um, make that clear he didn't leave them down the drench
0: he brought them back
1: up he brought them back and gave them back they were cups decorated by the schools
0: yeah no, so, that's
1: great and great. Uh, yeah have a look but but
0: anyway it's, and it was
1: interesting hearing what because um, I was thinking you know if you've done all these things what what do you do next
0: oh, he's got do lots.
1: you find just this because he's an advanced diver yeah so he can't even go down 40 metres you know, he's restricted <laughs> 30 metres you know and that's the man who's been to the deepest part of the ocean
0: still can't. Yeah. <laughs> still can't
1: do that, but and that's crazy, really, you know. But you know, the whole point of it is, it is brilliant to hear that he will still enjoy just a simple dive. He, he mm-hmm. enjoys a bimbo, and that's brilliant. Yes, it? yeah, and he's yeah, he's just an explorer through
0: and through. So I'm going to be following the hashtag hashtag explorer. Yeah. Hashtag create. Okay. And have hashtag scooper
1: Yeah, brilliant. And okay. I think.
0: Yeah, anybody check out his book as well, because I think that would be an inspiring read as well. Yeah, okay. what's his book called? Explore, Create.
1: Brilliant. Okay, so look out for that.
0: Links in the show notes.
1: Links in the show notes and uh, beyond the website as well. Um, so that's Richard, and uh, we will be catching up with Richard in a few months' time. Um, Richard's got some plans for mm-hmm. the future. And, yeah. Um, yeah, we spoke to Richard about... You know, hopefully catching up with him again yeah, it'd be great to have once him he's on done again. that Yep. so uh, that'd be good um also I'll just tell you about talking about website let me just tell you about our good friends fourth element mm-hmm. our good friends at fourth element do you know gem they've got their summer uh, collection 2021 that yeah. collection is out again yeah again uh links on our show notes if you want to look at the yep. Fourth Element's new range of clothing.
0: Some really nice t-shirts, some hoodies, isn't there? There so certainly you, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: some really nice stuff. You've just done an unboxing video as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for the storm, the Fourth Element storm Stormboard. poncho, yep.
0: which you would need today.
1: You certainly would. Yeah, it's a bit, <laughs> it's wet a
0: bit stormy and wet here.
1: Um, so look out for that also hello to our good friends at happybottle.com yep yep
0: we're loving their bottles
1: yep you're still using that so look out for that if you're unsure there's some videos on the youtube and if you want one
0: follow the link and you'll get
1: 20 percent off yeah certainly if you're looking to buy flask stop (laughs) or go to our website go to show notes order one through the happy and order one on happybottle.com through our link
0: through our link yep. yep
1: okay yeah. see so, so that's that um who
0: forgot coming up next
1: right we have got cat we've got cat on the show
0: what me? Yeah. A cat
1: her name's cat so we've gone so we've got cat so um who is a local diver we, we i've known cat for a little while now she is very recently uh, just qualified as a paddy instructor. She has, yeah, so with our local really good. dive centre. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, so that's really good. Now, um, I was on a uh, audio with Cat was doing a presentation about mm-hmm. diving in the on the east coast and in the UK. Things you need to know, uh, what equipment tide times all those sort of things but you know because we're going to be diving in the uk this year yeah it's about
0: planning that dive
1: they are so if you're listening to this and you're going to be thinking what do i need to know to dive in the sea i'm a baby diver just like jem here (laughs) um what do i need to know well download this next week's episode because we're going to have everything on there that you need to know about getting in the sea uh, especially on the east coast
0: and it's very th- thorough yeah coverage of everything yeah Some it's brilliant to, yeah. yeah
1: so uh, it's going to be a bit visual which is I know uh, we're a podcast I know it'll be on YouTube, but it as, well. Be on the YouTube yeah. as well will be on YouTube as well alright but at least you'll get you'll be get to talk about it and there'll be links and things like that mm-hmm. as well so can um shall I have a go at surname? <laughs> yes. go on, a surname
0: yes now it's
1: unlike me to get a name wrong you know uh, i Kat Gerasimova. Okay. So she's gonna be on the Big Scoop podcast next week.
3: Yeah, I'll look Talking to, to that us one. all
1: about scuba diving off the East Coast and what equipment you need and what you need to know, all those lovely things.
0: Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. So for all you UK divers, that will be a good one and well, lots of our overseas listeners as well. Yeah, It'll certainly applicable, will. Applicable yeah. yeah, in some form.
1: Yeah. Uh, if it's not this year it'll be next year so uh, and it'll be out there so yeah
0: fab
1: right it's been a bit of a long one um hope you all enjoyed this uh there will be bits and pieces going out to youtube um as well to back up the podcast but for right now yeah
0: as well as always like comment tell us what you think
1: and yeah do tell your friends you know we uh, we like everybody else you know Uh, We are trying to build the podcast, you know, and we do rely on our listeners. So, you know, if there's things you think you need to do that bit better, let us know. You know, uh, I'm open. We are. You know, I'm just a gardener. You know, we just do this. (laughs) So do let us know if you think, you know, there's things we need to do better. If there's things you want hear, if you've got guests, uh, maybe you've you something you want to share with us. Let us know. Contact us. All the details are all on the show notes. If not, go to our website, thebigscuba.com. Send us an
0: email,
1: yep. All right, and that will all be on there, okay? But yeah, tell your friends, like, share, comment. Subscribe. Subscribe. That's it. All
0: right, thank you for
1: downloading, and we look forward to seeing you on episode 72. Certainly
0: will. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We are not affiliated with any agency or organisation and all opinions expressed in this episode are our own and those of our guests. If you wish to make any comments about this episode, then please do contact us via email or our social media platforms that are listed in the episode show notes. Alternatively, you can send us a message or voice message via WhatsApp on the Big Scuba phone, and the number is plus 7810005924 We will always respond promptly and thank you once again for downloading this episode.